History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 119th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are bringing you a location suggested by our listener, D, with research assistance from Sharon Spungen and April Rogers Crick. And that location is Folly Beach. And this place has it all from shipwrecks to pirates to ghosts. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Denise, we just got home from Denver. Yes, we did. And we had a fabulous time there, even though, and we know a lot of our listeners from some of the more northern locations were enjoying teasing us about this, a huge snowstorm hit Colorado while we were there. And yes, we got stuck with it. It was a huge snowstorm, too, like lots and lots of snow. But did it stop us from having fun and finding haunts? It did not stop us. We had a fabulous pub crawl tour in downtown Denver on Friday evening of last week. We were joined by four other people. Yes, I believe it was four because we had Kathy, Casey, Ross, and Colleen. And Alex, our guide, was phenomenal. For those who want to go and experience that pub crawl, it was through Nightly Spirits, and it was the Denver pub crawl, and it was fantastic. Ask for Alex, though. She was great. And then on Sunday evening, we had our haunted walking tour of Capitol Hill in downtown Denver, and our nephew Ross joined us on that one, and also one of our listeners named Miranda, who is a sweet young lady. She actually showed up with hot chocolate from Starbucks for everybody. I know. That was fantastic. So we had a great time, and I even got pushed down by a ghost, Denise. Yes, she did. And you should see her face. It looks lovely, Diane. At least I'd like to use the ghost as my excuse rather than my klutzy feet. <laughs> I tripped over the sidewalk and face planted with the sidewalk. So I've got a little bit of a road rash on my face, which is pleasant. But we had a great time, even though it was freezing. Hopefully you got to see some of the pictures that we took. We put them up on our Instagram and also up in the Spooktacular crew. Yes, and if you want to do the Capitol Hill tour in Denver, it's through Denver History Tours, and our guide was Kevin, and he was fantastic as well. Kevin Ferris, and he's written a couple of the Haunted America books, so I got him to sign mine. We are doing another meetup this weekend, which is... In St. Augustine. On April 23rd, that's Saturday evening, 8.30 p.m., we're doing the Dark of the Moon at the St. Augustine Lighthouse, and we have made an executive decision to meet for dinner ahead of time. We have a few listeners coming into town to meet us for that. So if you guys want to join us, make sure you get your tickets as soon as possible. And then we're going to meet for dinner at 6 p.m. at the Coquina Beach Surf Club. You can find out more about that location at coquinabeachsurfclub.com. And that's C-O-Q-U-I-N-A. Now, before we get into telling you about Folly Beach, we'd like to point you over at the website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. 
And we want to thank Candace Nelson for sending us an email. She sent us some suggestions in the San Diego area and told us that she'd love to show us around Old Town there sometime, Denise. I would love to do that because San Diego is a beautiful part of the country. And Amy Zoller sent us a great email. She said, I've been listening to History Ghost Bump for months, and unlike all the good listeners who heard of you from Bizarre States, I heard about Bizarre States from you. Yay! (laughs) I love your show, the subject matter, the fun and creepy mood, the thorough research. Uh, I have several cool coincidences regarding calendar dates in your show. Your Landers Theater episode was released on my birthday and takes place in Springfield, Missouri, where I was born. Then on October 9th, I chose a random podcast of yours to listen to while taking a walk, and by chance I chose John Lennon, only realizing later that it was his birthday. I like to think this one was his little don't forget me haunting. My 10-year-old son also enjoys your show when I drive him to school. I let him choose music or podcast. Usually he says podcast. And when I ask which one, he always, and that's in all caps, goes for history, goes bump. We love your stuff. Oh, that's cool. I love it when we have our, I love all of our listeners, but when we have our we listeners, it, it just makes me smile. And then we got several messages at the History Goes Bump fan page. And this is from Pablo Lira. Hey guys, I just finished listening to the latest episode, Legends of Mexico. I've just started listening and I'm already loving this podcast. Hearing about El Cucuy brought back memories of my parents warning us not to do certain things or playing just trying to scare us by telling us that El Cucuy would be waiting for us. Also, another legend from Mexico I remember hearing about and being terrified of is La Lechuza. The story, as I was told, is that La Lechuza was a huge black bird or sometimes an owl about the size of a person that would sit outside your window and make crying noises. If you went to investigate, it would snatch you up. I remember being terrified one night thinking I heard it. I was so scared that I went to my parents' bed crying, asking if I could sleep with them because La Lechuza was outside my window. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Oh boy, there was a legend that we didn't get, and that one sounds terrifying. Yes, it does. These poor children. Like my heart breaks for all these little Mexican children that were terrified by all these things that were going to eat them or carry them away. Marjorie Sneed sent us a message and Denise, she put a link in here to a picture that was for sale on Craigslist and it was called Souls Trapped in the Painting for $25,000. And I looked at this painting and it's got this person who is like screaming in the middle of the painting and then you kind of see all these faces that are kind of coming out of the painting. So it looks like what you would imagine souls being trapped in a painting. So I just thought it was a painting. I didn't know why they were charging $25,000 for a painting until you get into the fine details describing a little bit more about this painting. These aren't just paintings of souls trapped in the painting. These are actually supposed to be souls that really are in it. It's description. No, I am not crazy. This original painting comes with seven ghosts trapped within the painting. My house has been haunted ever since I've had it. Now, they're not bad or evil. Sometimes they might do a few things on the naughty side, but nothing seriously bad. Actually, we're kind of used to them and enjoy their company. But now I think we owe it to them to give them a new home. If someone wants to give me $25,000, they are worth that much to us. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. These people are nuts. It's okay. We understand. The painting is oil on canvas created by Margaret Lee sometime in the 70s. It measures 16 by 20 inches. If interested, please send me an email. Thank you. If you do end up buying it, um, please tell us the story so that we can feature it on the podcast. (laughs) We got a message from Amber Wright. She's a young lady who is a trucker, another trucker, Denise. 
Yay, let's hear it for our truck drivers. Out. Did you used to make them honk? I did. Okay, so all the truck drivers, when you hear this podcast, blow those horns. So she said, hi, guys. Love, love, love your work. I'm a truck driver in the Pilbara in Western Australia. I've only recently discovered your fantastically enlightening and spooky podcast. Just listened to the episode about Fremantle, which was spot on. I was only there a month ago having a look at the roundhouse in Old Jail. So very cool about that. She said, some of your podcasts are so spooky that I'll be driving along and lock my door. And when I have to get out of my truck in the middle of the night to check tires, I'm always looking around. This area is rich with local indigenous history and lots of spooky lights known as Min Min lights have been seen. I've seen them when I jillaroot, which is chased station cows on horseback and lived in a swag in the bush. That's definitely Australian. They appear to look like a firefly that you could just reach out and pluck it from amongst the stars. Then they buzz around and disappear behind the horizon. Very cool. So then she sent us pictures of the visit that she made to Fremantle, which was really cool. And then she sent a picture of the rig that she drives, Denise. And she does not drive a truck. She drives a train on wheels. It really is a train on wheels. She showed me this thing. Not only does it have a giant cab, but when I look at it, and I believe she's standing in front of it here, it looks like there's at least one, two, I think four different cars hooked onto it behind it. I would be terrified to drive this, Amber. Girl power. Woohoo! She drives the biggest public road legal vehicles in the world. 54 meters long and 174 tons. Jeez. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Amber. And then we heard from Holly Lemons. Hi there. I just started listening to your show this past week and have started from the beginning. So needless to say, I have a lot of catching up to do. The first thing that caught my attention was the fact that you're in Florida. Then you were talking about cemeteries. Well, my family used to have a reunion in Perry, Eridu. If you're not familiar with it, it's right about at the bend just below Tallahassee. Anyway, on the back roads there, there are a bunch of old abandoned churches with small graveyards on the property. You can usually go into the churches to look around and the graveyards are very dilapidated and creepy. During the day, it's sad to see the cracking graves of children, but at night it's creepy as all heck. I tried to look online, but I'm unable to locate addresses or articles. I think it might be worth a day-night trip if you guys are ever up to it. Thanks for the great show. And so I told Holly, we definitely need to check that out because I love old churches and creepy graveyards. Just perfect. The other thing I want to point out, Denise, is we've been reading some of these. People are talking about how they're listening to all of the back episodes and listening from the beginning to the end. Something very interesting happened when it comes to our listener, Miranda, who joined us on our Capitol Hill tour. Would I you like know, to share th- that? Yeah, this is um very cool. So she told us that she she discovered History Goes Bump and was going to start with episode number one and work her way through all the way to the present day. And she knew we were from Colorado, which is where she lives. And she just got this feeling like, oh my gosh, what if they come to Colorado and I miss them? So she fast forward all the way to the most recent episode we'd put up and heard about the meetup in Colorado like the week before we were there and so because of that she was able to come meet up with us so we're like hmm was that a little bit of perception a little bit of intervention because her plan was to start at the beginning to come through she has this thought and then voila we get to meet her in Denver Colorado it was really fun so I don't know what called to her but I'm glad it did we want to welcome to the spectacular crew Carrie Ann hey Carrie Ann and our nephew Ross hi Ross well Denise are you ready to head out to a very beautiful beach with a incredible history and a mysterious past? I most certainly am. Let's do it. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. 
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. Today's Moment in Oddity is suggested by listener Rin Davenport. Located in Willow, Alaska, is one of the most amazing homes. The whimsical architecture of this multi-tiered house has led it to be dubbed the Dr. Seuss House by locals. Construction began on it around 2002, but it stood mostly unfinished for 10 years because the owner passed away during construction. During that time, the house played host to non-Seussical characters. There were no Who's, no Horton, no Cat in the Hat, no Thing 1 and Thing 2, no Sam-I-Am, no Lorax, no Grinch, and such. Rather, there were derelicts, drug addicts, and partying teenagers using the place for their festivities. In 2012, a new owner started the construction again, and it still needs to be finished. The structure has 12 levels, but these are not your traditional stories as found with most homes. Each level is set up like its own individual house, and they are stacked on top of each other. The structure at each level gets smaller, so that the top level is basically a tiny overlook. Riding the rail line from Anchorage to Fairbanks gives one a great view. Finding an architectural wonder in the middle of Alaska certainly is odd. Turn out the lights. The party's just getting started. This Day in History On this day, April 19th in 1775, the Revolutionary War began with the shot heard round the world. The war began when 700 British soldiers were sent with orders to destroy colonial military supplies in Concord, Massachusetts. What these British troops didn't know is that their orders had been revealed through some colonial spying by the Sons of Liberty, and the Patriots were prepared. They moved the supplies and then prepared for battle. Dawn broke in Lexington, Massachusetts on April 19th and shots rang out. The colonial militia was outnumbered as they only had 500 men and they were forced to retreat. The British took the opportunity to look for the supplies. While they were busy doing that, the colonists reformed their group and met the British at the North Bridge in Concord, where they drove back the British. The siege of Boston would soon follow, but it was this day in history when the American War for Independence got started. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a poem about this historic moment. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. The foe long since in silence slept, alike the conqueror silent sleeps. And time the ruined bridge is swept down the dark stream which seaward creeps. On this green bank by this soft stream we set today a votive stone. That memory may their deed redeem when like our sires our sons are gone. Spirit that made those heroes dare to die and leave their children free, bid time and nature gently spare the shaft we raise to them and thee. History Goes Bump Podcast. 
The barrier island of Folly Beach, South Carolina, appears picturesque with images of waves lapping against the sand. Locals refer to it as the edge of America. Below the surface of painted sunsets and beautiful beaches lies a dark history of mysterious and tragic losses. Folly Beach really has it all, from shipwrecks to the Civil War to pirates. Blackbeard himself took cover at Foley Beach. A native tribe also died out here. Is it this colorful history that has led to rumors of hauntings? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Folly Beach. And when it comes to the name of this location, I'm not sure whether it's Foley or Folly. We're going with Folly, so hopefully that's all right with everyone. Much of what we know about Folly Beach comes from its close geographic and cultural connections to the city of Charleston, South Carolina. So again, this is another one of those locations, Denise, we can visit real near in the future here. Like in uh, September of 2016. (laughs) The name Folly is thought to have come from the old English translation of the word, which means a clump of trees or a thicket. This name appears to be historically appropriate for the island. The main channel into Charleston Harbor in the 1700s and 1800s brought the ships past the northern side of Folly Island. For some ships, the trees on Folly Island may have been the first they had seen after a long voyage across the Atlantic, and it was really so dense with foliage and undergrowth that it looked like a jungle to a lot of these people. The island has also at times been labeled Coffin Land or Coffin Island on some historical maps. The significance of this name is still under debate for several reasons. Some believe that it's due to the fact that ships entering Charleston Harbor would drop off sick and dying people on the island to avoid becoming quarantined. Others think it came about from a shipwreck that occurred off the coast of Folly in 1700. Many of the bodies of those on board washed up on the beach. The final inconsistency with the name Coffin Island is that documents also show that the name being used for Morris Island as early as 1749. King William III issued a land grant for the area to William Rivers in 1696. Mr. Rivers was unable to do anything with the land grant, so he sold it. Folly Beach passed through the hands of several owners who never lived there, but the true owners of the island had been there for many years. The Bohicket tribe called this land home. The Bohickets were a sub-tribe of the Cuso or Cusabo who lived in a village near Charleston Harbor. By the late 1600s, this tribe had completely disappeared. Even today, it remains unclear what happened to them. A lot of people think it was just the Europeans moving in that kind of pushed them out. But this tribe didn't just move. They seem to have disappeared or died off. And that really is quite mysterious. Very mysterious and also very, very sad that they lost their whole culture. Exactly, especially because this is a barrier island. So this isn't your main land. So to get pushed off of that, it's like, look, we just have this little island here and you're going to push us off. By the 18th century, pirates would hide out along Folly Beach and maraud among the surrounding coves and inlets near Charleston. They would wreak havoc and commandeer innocent trade vessels. Edward Teach, or Edward Thatch, became the notorious pirate known as Blackbeard. He was an English pirate who terrorized the Caribbean Sea during the Golden Age of Pirates. This was a time period during the earlier 18th century. His main ship was the Queen Anne's Revenge. For Blackbeard, image was everything. He made sure to be pictured as a fearsome man with a feathered tricorn hat, pistols, knives, and swords. To add to the image in person, Blackbeard would appear as a terrifying man with smoke and fire emanating from his beard and around his head. And he got this effect by weaving matches and hemp into his beard, which would slowly burn and set him aglow when people would see him. 
Can you imagine just seeing this smoking head coming at you? No, I mean, he he was already terrifying just in reputation. And then to see this like glowing, smoking head of a pirate, I would have been very terrified. And what a lot of people may not know about him is that even though he's as well known as he is, he was not the most successful pirate out there. And he didn't do a whole lot of having to fight to get this stuff. It was that image that sold him. So before he would even get on board, they were ready to turn everything over to this guy. Like he didn't they have say, to do anything. image is everything. And the thing that some people might not know about pirates that we actually learned at the Pirates Museum that is true about Blackbeard is a lot of times they started out not technically as pirates because they worked for the royalty as privateers. And so they were kind of like legal pirates. If they went awry, they became real pirates. But they were doing the exact same acts under the crown and then they were called privateers instead. Uh, Blackbeard's going to get into a little bit of that himself. Originally, Blackbeard had served as a privateer during the War of Spanish Succession, working aboard an English ship in the Spanish West Indies. When the war ended in 1713, Blackbeard turned to piracy. He learned from other pirates and eventually was given his own ship by Benjamin Hornigold. His ship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, was originally the La Concorde, a French slave ship, and he added 40 cannons to it to make it the mightiest ship on the sea. He named it for the Queen of England and Scotland. He blocked the port of Charleston and looted several ships before the town encouraged him to leave. Do you know how they did that, Denise? Um, tell us, Diane. They gave him a chest of valuable medicine. Who would have thought you could make a pirate go away with medicine? Just a spoonful of sugar? No. <laughs> oh, no, not that again. <laughs> Blackbeard's ship ran aground on a sandbar near North Carolina in 1718. The wreck was discovered in 1996 and confirmed in 2011 as that of Queen Anne's Revenge. Blackbeard went legit after this, causing many to believe he wrecked the ship on purpose. Governor Eden of North Carolina pardoned him and then soon enlisted him in crooked dealings. Blackbeard would continue to loot but share his treasures with the governor. Two Royal Navy sloops caught up with Blackbeard and a fight ensued with the pirate almost escaping. In the end, the military got their man, leaving him with 20 sword cuts and five bullet wounds before cutting off his head and throwing his body into the sea. Legend claims that the body swam around the ship three times before sinking into the murk. The head was presented for proof in order to collect a bounty. Most of our modern-day ideas about pirates are inspired by Blackbeard, the most famous pirate in history. A tragedy occurred in the next century. In 1832, a sailing ship, the Amelia, was en route from New York to New Orleans when it was wrecked. As the story goes, 120 passengers survived and were cast ashore at Folly Beach. However, because it was believed cholera had broken out among the passengers, they were left at Folly Beach to fend for themselves instead of being brought to the mainland. On November 9, 1832, Charlestonians burned the wreck and cargo. While stranded on Folly Beach, 20 of the survivors did die from cholera. So apparently there really was cholera on board. But Denise, it wasn't just that they told these people, you're quarantined, you can't come over here to the mainland. They didn't let any supplies go out to them. That's just insane. During the Civil War, because of its close location to Charleston, Folly became a stronghold for Union soldiers. In 1863, federal troops began occupying the relatively uninhabited island. The federal troops constructed the first system of roads on the island. This allowed ambulances to transport wounded soldiers and also for communication purposes. The troops built various forts and batteries on both the northern and southern ends of the island. A commissary depot known as Pawnee Landing was built to aid in the unloading of troops and supplies. 
there was virtually no actual fighting on the island. An exception to the no fighting was on May 10, 1863. Confederate forces attacked federal pickets on the left side of Little Folly Island. The fighting was light as the Confederate forces were conducting a reconnaissance mission aimed mostly at gathering information and taking prisoners. Folly Island's major contribution to the Civil War was its use as a base, housing troops and equipment, and for the presence of an artillery battery located at the northern end of Little Folly. Rebel Commander Warren Ripley had less than 2,000 men in Charleston, while Union General Alexander Schimmelfennig, wow, what a last name, had 6,000 on Folly and 8,000 at Port Royal and Hilton Head. The island was used as a staging area for the Battle of Morris Island, which took place from July to September 1863. Fort Wagner, a Confederate fortification that guarded the entrance to Charleston Harbor, was located on Morris Island. From the artillery battery on Little Folly, the Federal troops shelled Fort Wagner and deployed troops to capture the fort. With the capture of Fort Wagner, the Federal troops were now in position to shell Fort Sumpner. On August 17, 1863, the shelling began and quickly reduced Fort Sumpter to rubble. The troops moved their artillery from Big Folly to the captured fort and renamed it Battery Meade. Still, they were unable to force the Confederates' surrender. Folly Island and Morris Island remained occupied by Federal troops until the end of the war. The Civil War ended and Folly Beach Island lost its use. The forts and beaches were abandoned until people realized that this was a nice beach area near the city. A pavilion was built in the 1920s, and rumor has it that this helped usher in the era similar to that of the time of piracy, where pirates enjoyed the isolation of the island. Bootleggers made good use of the island for their hideouts and dropping off liquor. Building and habitation really launched in the 1930s as temporary camps became cottages and then homes, and then finally tourist attractions were added like the Folly Pier, which became a musical headquarters. Big bands came to play, including Maurice Williams and Glenn Miller's bands. George Gershwin came as well, and while he was here, he composed the classic musical Porgy and Bess that contains the classic line, Summertime and the Living is Easy, in 1934 while staying at 708 West Arctic. A wooden bridge and toll gate was built to aid with the influx of daily visitors. A toll of 20 cents per person or 50 cents for a carload was charged. Friends would fill the car to capacity and beyond to avoid the high toll fee. Residents paid $3 a month to come and go as they pleased. At this same time, goats were being used to keep the grass under control. It became a popular game called kid snatching, which was to try and steal a goat and get it past the toll and off the island without getting caught. What they did with the goat once they were back in the city is unknown. Well, they better not have heard it, little brats. It wasn't until 1936 that Folly became a township all unto its own. A jail, if you could even call it that, was erected. It consisted of a mere cage in the marsh where the Sandbar Restaurant is now located in present day. Any man arrested for drunken or disorderly conduct was locked away with the mosquitoes and heat and left to sober up for a few days under the awful conditions. Later, the jail was moved to a more central location with a better environment. I don't know. I think torturing those guys with mosquitoes is okay. Yeah, but what did they do? They were just drunk, you know? It's like, at, le- <laughs> at least let's leave that for a little bit more harsh crimes. <laughs> well, you got to get them to sober up somewhere, I guess. The 1940s, coupled with World War II, saw an increase in population and needed housing on Folly. In 1942, the island initiated an air raid system. The siren would sound on Saturdays at noon. This happened every Saturday until the late 1990s. As visiting the beach for vacation became more popular in the 1940s through to the 1950s, there was an increase in musical entertainment on the island. A magnet for famous groups, top performers of the day, played the pier. 
Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Count Bassie, The Ink Spots, Dinah Shore, and many more performed for large crowds of beachgoers. The 1950s saw many black bands entertaining the throngs of white beachgoers. Folly Beach, like all southern beaches, was segregated. The only blacks allowed on the beach were maids, entertainers, or workers. So again, you could sing for the white people, but you couldn't hang out with them. In 1959, Hurricane Gracie pummeled the island in what was known as Rainbow Corner, a colorful cluster of buildings nestled in a grove of palmettos right on the ocean, one of the most popular dancing and drinking spots on the island. It was completely destroyed and had to be demolished. Roads and bridges were improved as utilities were upgraded, and the edge of America seemed to be just a little bit less isolated. The first surfboard made it to the beach in the 1960s, and Ocean Plaza was built with amusement rides and games and a boardwalk that stretched 1,700 feet. There were shops, food vendors, and even roller skating. This truly was the golden age of folly. Today it is a local vacation destination and home to a few thousand people. Part artistic retreat, part eclectic community, but all sun, beach, and ocean. With the kind of history that has occurred in and around Folly Beach, it is no wonder that there are claims that the town is haunted, particularly its beaches. Now, occasionally, as you have found when it comes to our podcast, we have locations that are reported to be haunted, but we don't have a whole lot of information on them. This place should be haunted as all get out with lots and lots of stories. And unfortunately, we didn't find lots and lots of stories, but we're going to bring to you what we did find. One possible reason for hauntings at Folly Beach could be linked to a mysterious discovery in the 1980s. Construction workers were digging on the island when they found 14 bodies at the western end of Folly Beach. The South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology was called out to handle the dig and the investigation, and they figured out that the bodies belonged to members of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment. The 55th Regiment was joined on Folly Beach by the soldiers of the 54th Regiment that was made popular in the movie Glory. Archaeologists were shocked to find that 12 of those 14 skeletons were missing their skulls and other body parts. And even stranger was the fact that the bodies didn't have battle wounds. Were the bodies buried this way and why? It's one of the great mysteries of the Civil War. Also, many of the soldiers who died at the Union Field Hospital were buried in unmarked graves on the island and are reputed to haunt the island. Denise, this is such an interesting mystery because it would be one thing if you had these groups of skeletons and there were a few body parts missing because you could say, well, maybe there's some animals that are here on the island that dragged body parts off. Exactly. But when you have 14 bodies and 12 of them don't have their skulls, those were taken from them on purpose and one has to wonder why. Now, as we found with Blackbeard, this was something that they used to do. And we also heard this story on our haunted walking tour. Yes, we did. That they would take the heads off of bodies in order to prove that they had killed somebody rather than having to haul a dead body all the way somewhere in order to collect on a reward or a bounty. Right, because the heads were much easier to transport than an entire body. And you don't have to deal with all of the ooey-gooey stuff that comes with a decaying body. Especially in the heat and all of that. So was there a bounty on these soldiers and that's why their skulls were taken? Were they taken as souvenirs? Was this some kind of ritual? I don't know, but it is one of the strangest stories I've heard, particularly in regards to the Civil War. I would agree with that. And hence why you would have some of them wanting to haunt that area and haunt the beach. Possibly they're looking for their body parts. Can't find my head. Now, on that same western end of the island, some residents have experienced paranormal activity that includes the smell of burning flesh, disembodied voices, 
And one resident claimed that an unseen small child was jumping on their bed in the middle of the night. So I don't know if that is in relation to any of the history that we've talked about or if just a small child had died in this home, but that is one of the hauntings that comes from Folly Beach. It only makes sense that a fearsome pirate like Blackbeard would still be here in the afterlife. His spirit has been seen walking the beaches near where he was killed, particularly near Ocracoke Island, North Carolina. Which will be one of our stops as we go over. I, when I was doing our researching, I found out the quickest way to get over, well, not the quickest way, but the more interesting way to get over to Cape Hatteras was to go on ferry via Ocracoke Island. So we will be stopping. How fun. And there's a lighthouse there. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. Absolutely. And what did you say about that? It's the second oldest lighthouse in the United States. So I, I, I didn't say what the first one was, but that is known as the second oldest lighthouse in the United States. Very cool. 20 passengers died at Folly Beach after they were left abandoned. And of course, those were the ones that were aboard the Amelia. So they are believed to haunt the island as well. They've been seen walking the beaches. And obviously, if you have some disembodied voices being heard, it could be some of those people as well. Does the spirit of Blackbeard still walk the beaches in the afterlife? Are the beaches here crowded with more than just the living? Is Folly Beach haunted? That is for you to decide. Interesting place. I'm looking forward to checking out the beauty of the beaches. Maybe we'll see a figure or two haunting the place. Absolutely. And it's going to be fun just getting there by ferry because we've never gone across on a ferry before with our car. Our next episode is going to feature a very different location than a Folly Beach. It's going to be a brothel, Denise. Hey, going to the brothel. I'm trying to think. Is this our first brothel? I mean, I know a lot of the locations that we've done were a brothel at one point. But have we ever exclusively? I don't know that we've done one that this is. Brothel. This is a brothel, and it's Dumas Brothel, suggested to us by our listener Julie David. Very cool. So that should be very interesting. We also have a few reviews to share with you from iTunes. First up, we have a one star from Miriam G. Denise, we're just awful. Okay. First of all, it takes forever for the actual podcast to start. Then we have a bunch of ads. We don't run any ads, so I'm not quite sure what that means. And announcements. That we have. Well, there are announcements, but there's a lot of personal emails and messages. So I don't know how that fits in ads and announcements, but okay. I've had to skip five minutes into an episode before the good stuff actually started. When the podcast actually starts, it's not particularly interesting. So then how's it the good stuff? Denise, I, you know, honestly, some of these people, I have to wonder about them. So it can't be good stuff if it's not particularly interesting. Do not try this podcast. So all of you that are listening, don't try it. Because guess what? When you do, it's addictive. That's what we heard from Cheap As. Sort of like the Pringles commercial, once you start listening. Five stars. You just can't stop at one. Went on a binge listening spree when a search on iTunes for Disneyland had their podcast pop up. What makes this show truly unique is not only did they tell about ghost legends about Disneyland, but also delve into the history of the park and of Walt Disney himself. After that show, I was hooked, went on to listen to every other show to date. Diane and Denise have great chemistry together while hosting the show, presenting the subject in a friendly, fun, and knowledgeable manner. I also enjoy the bonus This Day in History or Oddities in History blurbs they include in a lot of the podcasts as well. Looking forward to future podcasts. And we got five stars from Tanner Campbell. And for people who don't know, this is the host, or now he's going to be one of the co-hosts because he's getting another co-host on there of the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. If you haven't been listening to this one, I highly suggest it. 
Love, love, love. Interesting, educational, spooky, and funny at the right times. I love the show and I love the host. Keep up the amazing work. Well, thanks, Tanner. We love you too. And as a matter of fact, History Goes Bump is a sponsor of his show. That's how much we love it. Marjorie Sneed, who you heard we mentioned earlier, sent us a message over at the History Goes Bump fan page. She also gave us a five-star review friendly and interesting. I recently discovered this podcast over on TuneIn and it rocks my socks. Such a fun blend of history and haunting. Diana Denise, you are a great duo. Well, thanks, Marjorie. We appreciate that. And finally, five stars from Marissa F1024. Amazing. I absolutely love this podcast. I found out about it through Bizarre States and just finished listening to all the episodes. Denise and Diana are amazing hosts and I adore how much they care about their listeners. You can tell how much they care about their show and how much they put into the production. Thanks for giving me another podcast to be addicted to. Well, thanks, Marissa, for that. We appreciate it. And you're welcome for your addiction. Also want to let you guys know that we are up on Google Play. So if you want to listen to us via Google Play, you can now find the podcast there. We also want to remind you guys that we do have a History Ghost Bump forum now. If you go to historyghostbump.com and you just click on the HGB forum tab, you can go over there and get registered. We've been having a lot of great conversations over there. It's a place where you can share your personal paranormal experiences, pictures, share things about yourself. We also talk about non-paranormal things and we are getting ready to start a book club. So within the next week, I think we're going to pick a book that we're all going to read and then do the little book club thing on the internet. So that'd be cool. Virtual book club. Really fun. We want to thank all of you for joining us for this podcast. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Paul Prosperi for his one-time donation. Thanks. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding society, one podcast at a time.